Welcome to The Road Less Traveled. I am your host, DB. Happy New Year, everybody. Today's the first, the actual first of the new year, 2024. And I was on the fence on whether or not I should do this particular episode today or yesterday. Because there was a small part of me that I I really want to do this episode. Like, I have to do this particular one. But I was going back and forth on whether or not I should have done it yesterday and then just start this new year fresh with, um, I don't know, It's because it's not a clean slate. That's why this whole back and forth is a little hard for me, because I paid off my restitution. Um, That was part of my sentence. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I would encourage you to tune into the first episode of this podcast, the introduction. It does set up. Uh, what is the entire series? It uh, gives you an idea of what you guys are getting into. So if you're new to this, I encourage you to start there. And if you are returning, thank you for continuing to follow. And please like, share, subscribe, and do all the stuff. Because uh, this is a one-man operation, which is slowly building up some momentum. So thank you guys for uh, helping out there. I really appreciate it. But... This episode, this episode is going to be focused on my sentencing, on me being adjudicated guilty, being sentenced for the crime that I committed, and being sent to prison. It's a very heavy episode, and that's kind of why I wanted to do it yesterday. I wanted to start the new year fresh. I wanted to be able to go into the new year, um, I don't know, I guess with positivity, with a new drive, with ambition, but that would also then be predicated upon the idea that I could somehow unburden myself or leave this behind, which I can't. So that's why I wanted to actually save this for the first of the year, because I wanted to start 2024 off by acknowledging once again and owning the fact that back in 2016 due to my poor decision making due to me not handling a situation that I thought was significant at the time I abused alcohol I blacked out at home I got in my car for unknown reasons and I hit and killed another driver in 2016. Like, I have to acknowledge that. I can't start this year, uh, you know, happy-go-lucky and just saying, like, oh, great, you know, I paid off my restitution. This whole year is going to, like, I'm leaving those things behind. I'm not. They're there. They are a part of me. So this episode, like I said, we'll focus on, uh, we'll focus on my sentencing. This one, I don't know how I'm going to react near the middle of it. I can only hope that things, you know, can continue smoothly. So please uh, bear with me, guys. I really don't know how this episode is going to turn out. It is going to be uh, me navigating through some unknown territory here. Even though I've had years to process this, I have had many opportunities to speak with this about uh, to rather other people. And my reaction's always been different. 
sometimes, um, you know, things can be more informational and I can keep things very surface level, but there's other times where I just break down. Like I, I am struggling in certain, at certain times with this. So, uh, some of this will be a refresher of the introduction. Like I stated before, back in 2016, I was involved in a car accident where I was 100% at fault because I should not have drank so much that I blacked out and did not know that I was getting in a car. It's inexcusable. It does not matter that I was unaware of what I was doing. I abused alcohol. I drank too much. That's where it stops. I 100% own that. So... It has come, it took me uh, being in jail for two straight years, 720 days by the time I was, the day I was sentenced, so just shy of two years. I, I went back and forth on my case in the state that I am in, and again, this podcast is intended to be anonymous, but the state that I'm in has indeterminate sentencing. So based off one, the severity of the crime, two, based off your priors, and three, just, you know, other mitigating circumstances, you may end up with a charge or a sentence that is a smaller or more forgiving window of time versus a maximum sentence. So structurally, I could have been looking at anywhere between two and 20 years, which is a huge window of time, just a massive window of time. Like on the lower end, um, it's still a window. So like I could be sentenced to two to five years, two to 10 years, two to 20 years. And then all of those in-betweens would be dependent on my behavior. For example, if I was sentenced to a minimum of two years and a maximum of 20, I would be at the two-year mark eligible for parole. That is not to say that I would be granted parole, but it is at least um, something that could happen. 20 years could also happen. That maximum could also happen. I could have very easily messed up in some way where I, you know, my behavior in prison was not conducive to rehabilitation, although that's an air quotes and a joke statement. (laughs) There is no rehabilitation. But if I was going into prison, trying to make a name for myself, you know, <laughs> trying to rise the ranks, become a gang member, you know, whatever, and they noticed that I'd gotten write-ups or gotten into fights or whatever, like the board, the parole board could deny me my release. So sentencing is an incredibly important thing because it more or less ensures you what the potential is. You could potentially be looking at this little time, but you could potentially be looking at this maximum time. And I was always, I was always a little confused because my specific offense, my specific crime is a very emotionally driven crime. Like it, it is a DUI resulting in substantial bodily harm or death. That was the charge. Now, mine obviously resulted in a death. But when you have these circumstances or the this wording where it's substantial bodily harm or death, like, how do you determine the severity of something when it's subjective? 
Because someone, for example, who was hurt so badly that they are permanently paralyzed, say, from the neck down, is the suffering that they will endure for the rest of their life worse than someone who passed away in a moment? And I'm not here to debate philosophy. That's something I 100% do not have an answer to. I have thought about that. I've talked about that. I have struggled to understand that. And there's no answer to that. What one person experiences will never be exactly what somebody else's experiences. Their hurt, their loss, their pain will not be the same as somebody else's, nor will their potential to forgive be the same as somebody else's. So someone who goes through something significantly or at least subjectively significantly worse and is able to find within themselves the ability to forgive the person that hurt them or their loved ones, there could be someone else out there where you might not see whatever they are going through as major or something to hold on to with such a uh, personal vendetta-like grip. Uh, they, you know, like their pain is completely real. It is, it is to them tangible. Like they may not be able to let go of it as easily. So dealing with something that is that complex and then trying to weigh the life of another versus what is just, what is fair I mean, all those words are just fancy, well-intended things that honestly mean nothing when it comes down to it. Like, the the actual moment, the day of sentencing, like, that's coming. But the, the, the event, the approximate cause, whatever kicked off all of this stuff has already happened. So, sentencing, I don't know. Like, I felt legitimately and genuinely bad for not just the victim but their family and their friends and their loved ones and everybody else because i was thinking way beyond just sentencing i was thinking beyond what i had done like i'd seen other like i saw myself in the newspaper and i'd seen myself in um the news like and so I was actually taken aback that my particular story, like I didn't care about me being in the paper. It was the person that I'd hurt. They got maybe one, maybe two days worth of coverage. And then it just like, there's just so much going on that like it kind of fell by the wayside. I was, I was personally, and this is so goddamn selfish to even admit, but I was relieved that they didn't get as much coverage, but I also felt sickened to myself that I felt that way because these people deserve that. They deserve to be heard and acknowledged and their and how like what they're going through to be recognized and felt. And I felt so I was I'm ashamed to say I felt relief because the media were they had signed releases granting permission to cover my case in the courtroom from start to finish. We had media releases from Fox and CBS and NBC and all the local news stations that were ready to make this into a huge thing. And um, like my lawyer had handed me all these documents 
and I still have some of them. And I was just like, oh my God, what is about to happen? Like I, this was still in the early days when I couldn't even understand like what I had done. And now you're telling me like, this will be paraded around the entire state or, you know, who knows where, um, and it, it didn't go that direction. Another accident happened. Another news story happened. Another thing happened. And they just, it just like the article kind of just disappeared and the story just kind of disappeared. And, you know, I, it's not like I ever get to reach out to the family and make a phone call through my lawyer or through myself and get to apologize in any real meaningful way. Like there's no dialogue that happens. There's no discussion. It's just a DA and a lawyer and they're talking kind of behind the scenes, but otherwise it feels like there's no real involvement. Like the, this justice system, it's, it's just a system. It's the best thing that we could come up with. And we haven't thought of anything better. I mean, we've come up with a few ideas, but it's like, how do you replace something that kind of works, even though it doesn't? Like, not really. It's not even good enough. It's just okay. <laughs> and it's weird that that system hasn't evolved in, you know, since its uh, incarnation. Like, we just use jail cells, jail bars, and Latin language in order to explain our legal system. It is not set in a modern period. It does need a small update, but let's get focused on sentencing. Sentencing occurs after you either one sign a deal between both your district attorney and your lawyer. Like you guys reach an agreement, otherwise known as a plea agreement. And that one's very complex, <clears throat> excuse me, because the plea agreement it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of a weird joke. Like, I, the reason there is a plea agreement, and honestly, a majority of cases reach a deal. Very few cases go to trial because, one, it is extremely costly. It costs a ton of money. It costs a ton of time. It is also something that takes tons of preparation for. And these are already overwhelmed people. Like, they are in a system that they are just completely overwhelmed almost every single day by because of the amount of paperwork, the amount of people, the lack of time. And breaching a deal is one easy way to kind of streamline the process. The downside of that is that most inmates or felons or convicts or whoever, they play to that knowledge. Like, they understand, at least in the jail and prison experience, again, I'm only speaking from my perspective and experience here, but all the inmates around me, they told me, do not take the first deal. Whatever the first deal is, it's usually just a carrot and stick. It's just to dangle it in front of you and see if you bite. And it's usually not a very good deal. It's just to get something out there just to see what happens. You always reject the first deal, they said. You start negotiating. You start, you know, saying, hey, I do. I would like to invoke my right to a speedy trial, which gives them 60 calendar days to get you before a judge. 
you are allowed to invoke your right to a speedy trial. Now, that is only in like good faith. That's another one that's in air quotes. Because a speedy trial doesn't mean that in 60 days you're going to be going to trial. Invoking your right to a speedy trial means that we can, under the best of circumstances, get you to trial within 60 days. However, we are permitted to delay. We are permitted to make adjustments. We are allowed to wiggle around. Because if I, for example, say I'm not ready, I can push back a little bit, push back a little bit, do some calendar calls. But there will be a time where they can force either my hand or their own hand. If I invoke my right to a speedy trial, generally it's to put some pressure on the DA to hopefully they give me a better deal. It's maybe a little trigger to say, hey, I have some mitigating circumstances on my side. I have evidence that may help my case. So we're trying to push towards trial to either get you off balance or to scare you into like uh, easing up a little bit. Now, in my experience, that did not work. I pled not guilty as advised by my public defender at the time in order to give him some time to investigate uh, my case. He said we would at the moment like to invoke the right to a speedy trial, which again would hopefully put pressure on the DA. And the DA countered with no deal. Uh, I was a little shocked when my public defender told me that. He leveled with me and said that uh, this district attorney is a particularly aggressive one. He is uh, very sure of himself. He thinks he has a slam dunk open and closed case with you. At, and my public defender agreed at the time, which was unfortunate. I had a number of things working against me. Eyewitnesses, throw those out the window. Those guys were just all over the place. I had half the people on my side. I had half the people against me. So let's disregard those people. Eyewitnesses, very unreliable. The physical evidence, though, was my own car's black box telling me or telling everyone exactly how fast I was going, uh, when I had braked, what I was doing, basically everything, moments before, after, and during that crash. So that already gave them pretty much all the evidence they needed. We then hired a accident reconstructionist who was able to say that he is 70% certain that it was my fault. There's a few other things that may work in my favor, but given what he believes happened, I was at fault. And again, these things are not in order to get me off the hook or get me out of accepting responsibility for these things. The tactic of your lawyer in this instance, whether you are guilty or innocent, is to protect you as their client. So if you are guilty, it's one to see that you are represented um, fairly. It is that you are not taken advantage of during the uh, legal proceedings. And it is also that you get the best deal. It's not, it's not saying you're going home free and you're not going to get what you don't deserve. It is just to make sure that everything is impartial and fair. Again, this is an emotionally weighted case. So fair is just a very loose term right now. So I had all those things working against me. 
Um, I had one major thing uh, that was also working against me, and it was uh, my own blood toxicity. They had done uh, two separate blood draws. Uh, even though I had refused the blood draw, they uh, did one at the uh, hospital. They were able to get a telephonic warrant, although I've never gotten a copy of that. I believe they have it somewhere. Um, they were able to get a telephonic warrant from a judge uh, overnight. They were then able to do two separate blood draws from me, and one was almost a few minutes outside of the window of which they should would have legally been able to do that uh, before it would have been inadmissible. Those two blood draws, they were able to do what is known as a retrograde extrapolation, and it is basically you take the first sample and you analyze it versus the second sample for the blood alcohol content, otherwise known as BAC. You would see if it is either trending upwards or trending downwards versus the amount of time when the first and second draw was done based off the first or the time of the accident. That allows them to see approximations of where your blood would have been during the accident. And again, if it was trending downwards, that means that you would have peaked roughly around X time and then you have Y time. So they figured that, yes, I was indeed over the legal limit at the time. Um, approximately 0.222 is what they said. Uh, I, I've done a little looking into what 0.222 would be like. Um, I... I mean, I don't remember the accident. I was blackout drunk. I was unable to even realize that I'd left uh, my own apartment at the time. And that is consistent with what uh, the different scientific journals that I've read on that high level of intoxication. A point two 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 is a few drinks away from slipping into a coma, uh, to which you may or may not come out of. Uh, I mean, it's, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have been able to leave that night. I should not have been able to even stand really. I should have probably just fallen asleep wherever, but I, I don't know why I was able to keep going. Um, I really wish I, my body had just shut off. I, I almost wish I'd had that just one or two extra drinks to where I was incapable of leaving. Uh, but that is not the direction things went. Um, I was able to get in my car, and obviously I did hit that other vehicle. And I've wanted to get those memories back. Like, I wanted to try hypnotism or therapy to where they could possibly unlock uh, those memories. But unfortunately, according to science... It's as if my hard drive was not recording during that time, so the information is not there to get recovered. Uh, nothing I do will restore those memories because they are not there. So I've only gone uh, based off uh, what's been told to me. I haven't gone, I've driven past where the accident would have happened, and it gives me like. I don't know, like an eerie sensation because I can't I can't see it. I can't. I can't figure it out. You know, like I I get what I've been told has happened. I just, and I, ha I had the pictures at one time. Like I looked over dozens and dozens of pictures of the accident. And even so, it's just like, 
I can't reconcile with what I saw and what I did. So it's, it's just really kind of confusing and a little hard to sort through that. And it was honestly the lowest point of my entire life. Like that, what I've done, that one thing will be, I believe, hopefully the lowest point of my entire life. Like I'm absolutely ashamed of, of how that happened, how I was able to cause that amount of hurt to another person, to people. So because of that, for sentencing, I spent, I spent weeks working on the letter on what I wanted to say to the family of this person. I spent weeks, I mean, I spent two years thinking about what I would say if I ever got the, the opportunity. And I still think to this day, like, if I ever met them, I would never even know where to start. But I, I feel I know what I would want to convey. And I just, for sentencing, I hope I was able to do that. Like, I, I wrote a one-page letter, and I, I just, so, let's, okay, let's focus on uh, the census report. So, I did end up uh, doing two years in county. I signed a deal. I reached a plea agreement where it gave me six to 20 years uh, with the opportunity of a uh, alcohol rehabilitation program. Uh, under house arrest at the five-year mark. So I uh, did end up doing about five years, four months before I was released to house arrest. I was able to reach that plea agreement. Uh, I will say there was there is a little note uh, during sentencing where the judge asks um, for this agreement, the plea that I signed, was anything guaranteed to me? And it's funny that they ask that because they state very clearly in that moment that the quote unquote plea agreement, the deal, the thing that you, the district attorney and the you, the clients are the district attorney and your lawyer and yourself, like the three of you have reached this agreement. You have all agreed to this and signed. Uh, the judge says that it is not guaranteed what is in writing here. That the thing you signed and agreed to and are coming before the judge today to be adjudicated guilty on, that that is not guaranteed. And they make you verbally agree to that out loud, stating that you know that this is not an actual agreement and that this is not an actual guarantee. That the judge, at the end of the day, can say and do whatever he wants. And... I can't remember exactly how I worded it, but I stated, I didn't state it as a guarantee, although I did make mention that this is the purpose to why we were all here, that it was only predicated upon this agreement that we were before you for sentencing. So if the judge pulls the agreement or gives you something else, I have no leg to stand on in court if it had gone south like if it had gone all bad for me like there's nothing i've signed the second that gavel hits the thing you're done boom adjudicated guilty your sentence oh well like things can go fucked real fast 
Um, and one major thing I do want to point out for my sentencing, and this was part of the letter that I started with when I addressed the family. I let them know that I didn't want any family or friends there. I was alone in that courtroom, at least on my side. I was alone on the defendant's side. It was just me, and it was just my lawyer. And on the other side, there were about 40 people. And uh, three, or, three or so of them were uh, the victim's children. Now, when I say children, I mean they're like mid-40s because this was an older person. But that means their children's children's there. Brothers, sisters, nephews, cousins, all the whole works, family, friends, co-workers. I mean, it, this isn't just, just a person. This is a loved one, this person. And I told this again in my, in my letter. Like, I look at it as if I had taken away my, my own family member. Like what they meant to me. They didn't just touch me. They meant a lot of things to a lot of people. Like, they, they were more than I'll ever understand. And I didn't just take away, like, who they were. I took away who they could have been. And I don't know if maybe later in life they would have been that person that you know said or did like just the exact right thing for maybe one of their nieces or nephews or you know their own child or something maybe they would have been the the difference in somebody else's life and now that opportunity or that moment's just not there anymore like i've severed that link i like i took that away forever and it, it's, it's rough having such a creative mind because it never stops with the possibilities for me. Like, I'm, I want to say I'm a writer by trade. And so my mind keeps going in a loop where it's like, this person could have done that. They could have done this. They could have done this. And it's never ending. It sometimes feels like you're sinking. Uh, sometimes... It just, I don't know, it feels like you're just spinning around or like you keep going in circles. And it's like a whirlpool of confusion. And I, I, I think I was able to convey to both the court and the people there how much I, um, um, I just convey how much I how much I, I don't know, un, I don't want to say understand, because I don't. I just, I tried to convey to them that I didn't take it lightly. That I was genuinely remorseful. That I know that what I, I'm about to experience and go, go, excuse me, go through, I accept and I, I know that I deserve because of what happened like it doesn't matter that it's an accident intentions at that point don't matter 
I could have intended to do a lot of great things, but if that was the end result, intention unfortunately doesn't matter. Not in that instance. And I believe the first person, like they had three people speak out against me. It would have been a long day if they had everyone talk. Because uh, there was a lot of people there that were rightfully hurt and rightfully mad, sad, just all of it. So they had three people speak out against me, and it was uh, the person's children. Uh, again, like I said, they were older. So the first person they wrote, uh, read from a letter. And and I, I get it. They don't know me. They only know my action. They only know the one instance that happened. And forever, I'll probably forever be known to those people as that. Like they don't get to see, you know, the good that I've done, the love that I've experienced or felt for other people. They don't get to see the side of me that's kindness and giving and you know, laughter and humor and creativity. They don't see that. They only saw destruction and death that day. And they saw a person that, I mean, I don't know what they think, but that their only run in with me is this one major life event. And why would they want to know me after that? They, they don't probably want anything to ever do with me. So that first letter was, uh, justify, excuse me, justifiably rough to hear. It was deserved. The second person that spoke against me, I hate to say, pretty much reiterated the sentiment of the first letter. They read from their own letter, and it was more or less identical, which is okay. That is their pain and their frustration, and a, and how insane though that one piece of paper. It's going to summarize your thoughts and feelings on something that we could just just talk about without an end in sight. That's all they got is one piece of paper's worth of time. Like I, I, I want more for them. I don't know how to give that though. I don't know how to give back or give them more. The third person that spoke out, though, the person that went last, they didn't read from a letter. And I'll, I still remember their name. I won't mention it. Obviously, I remember my victim's name, and I will not mention that either. Um, but the third person that spoke, they spoke from the heart. And it didn't feel like they were talking from like their perspective, if that makes sense, it felt more like they were talking to me. And I had gotten to speak first because the way, um, at least the way my judge had run things, he was very, you know, very somber. It's an intense, serious situation. And like I said, thankfully the media did not show up. It was a completely closed courthouse or courtroom rather. And, uh, he uh, moderated the court saying that he will deliberate and then I will speak first 
um, and then I will be silent and I am not to speak or look at the family that I am supposed to speak and look at the judge himself only because I am supposed to address the court, not the not the people of the court. I'm supposed to address the court. And he's very specific about that. He's very supposed to, this is the proceedings. It will be formal. This will not get out of control. So I addressed him. I did occasionally glance over at both... Um, the victim's family and also the very very big uh, portrait of the victim that they had brought in and I made sure to look directly at that portrait to get to keep that image of that person to see what I had taken away um, and then uh, and then he said that after I had said my piece that they would get to talk and they did. And the third person spoke directly to me and what I had said. And it felt like forgiveness more, not forgiveness in the traditional sense. It felt more like understanding. Like they acknowledged that I did not seem like the person that had ever intended to harm someone. They, they acknowledged that they believed that I never meant for this to happen. And, and they, they did say that they didn't hate me. They did say that they only hated what had happened, but not me specifically. They were, um, they were a little different than the first two. Uh, and they did put in a small request that I do, um, a little something in honor of, uh, you know, of their loved one. They wanted me to uh, do like basically a recurring type donation thing if possible. And the judge, um, you know, thought, hey, that's, he did acknowledge, he said, that's, this is a great idea. It is an out of the box uh, thinking. And if he were able to do so, he would love to have made that a part of my sentencing. He, and in a very, very rare moment, for some reason, he addressed me. In that moment, he, he turned to me and he, he, he basically acknowledged, like, hey, like, if you so choose, that is a good idea. That would be a wonderful thing to do in order to honor them. And I was able to turn to this last person and I, I said, yes, I will do that. I, I will follow through on that. And it, it doesn't matter what it is. I have followed through on it. Um, they will never know. That's not what it's about. Nobody will know again, not what it's about, but that's the only thing I can hold on to. Like it's, it's almost insignificant because like, like I'm doing it for them, but they never get to know about it. So like they don't feel that their loved one's legacy is still being carried on. So it's really just about integrity at the end of the day. And I wanted them to know like my character has not changed. You only get to see in this moment the bad guy. But that's not who I am. I've done bad things, but I'm not a bad person. 
So I'm struggling with uh, some of that. Like I keep wavering back and forth. Like I genuinely believe I am a good person. Um, but we, I think we all, uh, I think we all struggle a little bit sometimes. And this is just me trying to be open and honest uh, in a safe environment, hence the anonymity. But sentencing wrapped up with I was adjudicated guilty and sentenced to six to 20 years. I was imposed a, um, a large restitution uh, payment in order to reimburse the family for both funeral costs, flight costs, uh, a few other costs um, that the insurance didn't pay out on the accident, uh, which is was incredibly fair. I mean, money aside, like none of that stuff matters. Like those people didn't care about those things. That's just, that just is what it is. Like they, that's not what they wanted. They wanted their, their loved one back. So I had that, I had some court fees, I had whatever. Um, and then I was granted 720 days, uh, time served, credit time served. And the judge looked at me at the very end and, uh, you know, we, we got to have that small um, discussion that wasn't exactly the status quo. And he turned to me and he's like, you know, you seem genuine. For all intents and purposes, everything you've said, uh, how you've carried yourself. And I, I broke down crying. I was sobbing when I was trying to tell these people, like, it, like just how sorry I was. And he, he said, you know, I feel like you were genuinely remorseful. But the only thing that will show your character is you. And you will have to carry yourself with a, like a modicum of self-respect. And also just basically keep on the straight and narrow. Because prison, he told me, is full of things that can either distract or or destroy me and that if I go down those other paths I will be coming out an old man he said I have the potential to come out in five or so years but if I fuck up I will be coming out an old man if coming out at all and I knew I, I knew what he was saying was true I knew that I, I didn't want my family or my friends there because I didn't want them to see me at the lowest port, part of my life. But I also didn't want them as that, maybe that's their last memory of me. Me in handcuffs, belly chain around me with my you know wrist cuffed to their ankle chains on me where I can barely move. And what if I die in prison? Huh? What if I get stabbed or just you know, strangled, shot, whatever. Like you hear that stuff. It happens. You hear it people going in for only a little bit of time, it's supposed to be out in a year or less, die, get killed. So I didn't know if that was going to be the last time I'd ever see my family or friends. It wasn't a thought that crossed my mind all the time, but I will let you know it influenced my decision-making I didn't want them to see me as their last memory of me being in prison or jail blues. Tears on my face, looking like 
I just, I'm scared to death. I didn't want that. And so I went into sentencing alone because I knew that I would have to go do my time alone. I can, I, I mean, I, I was the only one that did the crime and I'm the only one that can take, take the consequences. I'm the only one that can serve that time. And that's how I had to look at it. I created distance. I pushed family and friends away to make it easier. I said some of it was for them and I know a lot of it was for me. And I acknowledge that and it was easier. And I'm sorry if, uh, I don't know, maybe you guys didn't realize that was happening at the time or maybe you didn't understand or maybe you wanted to be closer there for me, I don't know. But that's just kind of the path it took. And all I can say is I got through it. I was able to make it through my sentencing, through my jail, through my prison, and through all those crazy experiences that you will be hearing future episodes on. I made it through. A couple times it was close. Those will be some of the more interesting stories. Uh, but I made it through, and I'm still on parole right now. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just be good. I'm trying to start the new year off right. And I want to acknowledge today, January 1st, 2024. I want to acknowledge my past, where I've been, what I've done. And I want everyone to know going into 2024, I am going to work hard. I am rededicated to just both being positive, to getting things done. And I still have over a year and a half of parole left to go. The stakes are very high for me because if I mess up, I potentially have 12 more years hanging over my head. I was sentenced to 6 to 20 years. I am at the... Where are we at? Um, I'm at like the 8, almost 9 year mark. But if I violate my parole, I could be going back to prison and then facing a maximum of 12 additional years. The stakes are very high. And I like there's no temptation out there to start drinking again. Let's be very clear. Did not have a problem with that. Do not want to go back to that. Scared to death to even do it. So I'm thinking 2024 is going to be a very good year. And I feel selfish. I don't know how to always enjoy that or um, allow myself some happiness because when I feel happy, sometimes I feel um, just sad or confused or sometimes downright miserable. Like I just feel like I don't deserve that happiness. And I do waver. Like it's not all the time. Um, but man, those dark thoughts creep in and the podcast so far has helped. I don't know if it's helped anybody else. I've had a couple people reach out and say, Hey, you've answered some questions of things we had no idea about. Um, so thanks. I appreciate that guys. That feedback is invaluable. Hearing those things is awesome. Like I absolutely love that. This has been so helpful and beneficial to me. So to hear that people are getting some things out of it, it, it's amazing. Thank you, guys. Um, we're, we're running a little long here, so I do want to wish everyone a very happy new year. 
Guys, please be safe out there. I hope you all have, you know, just a great start in this January. It's only day one, guys. We've got plenty of time. So let's just have a great year, everybody. You've been listening to The Road Less Traveled. I'm your host, DB. Please like, share, subscribe, and all the stuff. And I will see you next time next Wednesday. Thank you for tuning in.